Hey everyone, this is Dr. James Spencer, and you're listening to the Useful to God podcast. Useful to God is a daily Bible teaching program for Christians who desire to be hearers and doers of God's Word. For additional resources and opportunities for further study, visit usefultogod.com. Now let's get started. Hey everyone, welcome to Useful to God. We're on our third day of our 30 Days in the Gospels Challenge, and in this episode, we're going to be looking at John 7. In this text, we find Jesus at the Feast of Booths. This celebration is also known as the Feast of Tabernacles or as the Feast of Sukkot, which is a transliteration of the Hebrew for booth or tabernacle. Held at the end of Israel's agricultural cycle every year, uh, this festival was the last of the festivals in the fall that celebrated the harvest. And the festival was really a time of thanksgiving in which Israel celebrated God's provision. Like many other Israelite practices, however, this feast was intended to remind forthcoming generations of the Exodus and subsequent time in the wilderness during which Israel lived in tents. As such, during the Feast of Booths, Israelite families were to build temporary shelters to mimic those the Israelites used during the wilderness wanderings. And the feast is first described in Leviticus 23, 33-44, and subsequently in Numbers 29, 12-40. It's also described in Deuteronomy 16, 13-17. The Jews celebrated the harvest after returning from exile in Ezra 3, 1 through 7 and Nehemiah 8, 13 through 18. And the feast involved a few different areas uh, and a few different acts. So number one, there was a holy convocation in which no work was done on the first day. Then there were seven days of presenting food offerings with another holy convocation on the eighth day in which no one was to do any work. They would also construct the tabernacle, tabernacles or booths, and then they would bring sacrifices from the harvest. And the feast came to be understood to connect God's past, present, and future provision. Uh, even in the Old Testament, the Feast of Booths is used to demonstrate the future faithfulness of the nations. So it looks forward to an age in which Israel, or the nations are incorporated into the nation of Israel. So the celebration of the Feast of Booths, for instance, in Zechariah 14, 16 through 19, is evidence that the nations recognize the Lord. And those who refuse to celebrate the feast will suffer consequences designed to negatively impact the harvest in the following year. Drought and plagues will come upon those nations that don't worship the Lord. And by the time of Jesus, the Feast of Booths would surely have taken on an eschatological and, and particularly a messianic significance. So with this background in mind, let's take a look at John 7 by considering the first 13 or so verses. In verse 1 and 2, uh, we get some important background to Jesus' ministry. Uh, he's been remaining in Galilee rather than Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. And after learning that it is almost time for the Feast of Booths to begin, in verses 3 through 4, we learn that his brothers urged Jesus to go up to Judea, even though they knew the Jews were seeking to kill Jesus. And they want to, they want him to make himself known. And they tell him this, they say, if you do these things, show yourself to the world. But we find out in verse five that Jesus' brothers don't really believe in him. And so the challenge for him to go up to the feast really seems to have less to do with their desire to see Jesus dead than to question Jesus's claims. In other words, knowing that the Jews were there and that they were trying to kill Jesus and that he's been staying in the Galilee as opposed to going into Judea, they're really daring Jesus to go up to the Feast of Booths in order to get him to admit that he isn't who he says he is or, or that these claims that you're making are really false. Now, in verses 6 through 8, Jesus responds to his brothers. 
And his response involves two basic ideas. The first one is that his time has not yet come. Uh, Jesus isn't going to be forced into revealing himself before the proper time. His death is going to come at a time uh, at the crucifixion, but not at the Feast of Booths. Um, Second, he tells his brothers why the world hates him. And he testifies that the works of the world are evil. So he can't go up to the feast because he is not of the world. So unlike his brothers who can go to the feast without fear of being hated by the world because they are of the world, Jesus can't subject himself to that hatred uh, because his time has not yet come. So overall, Jesus's itinerary is not going to be determined on a dare. It will be determined by the Father and his timing. So after his brothers leave for the feast, um, we're told in verse 10 that Jesus actually goes ahead and goes up to the feast, but he does so in private. And I think the private aspect of this actually proves to be pretty wise because what's happening at the feast is that Jesus is being, um, there's some division about who Jesus is and, and what people think about Jesus. And so if he'd gone up in a more public group, in a more public fashion, particularly with his brothers who are trying to bait him into showing who he is himself, it may very well have resulted in um, early proclamation of his messiahship, which wouldn't have been good, or to his arrest, which almost happens anyway. But in a bigger group like that, there could have been ways for them to trump up charges and really um, arrest Jesus on different grounds. And so while opinions were really split on Jesus, we are told that no one spoke against Jesus for fear of the Jews. Um, Jesus eventually is going to reveal himself by going to the temple to teach. And while the content of Jesus' teaching is not recorded, we are told that the Jews were amazed that Jesus was able to teach, given that he'd never studied. And that probably refers to the fact that Jesus never studied under a rabbi. It wasn't that he was illiterate or something like that, but more that um, he was not part of a rabbinic tradition, a rabbinic school where he would have learned um, the the law in, in depth. Uh, Jesus does not claim to have studied, though, but he offers teaching from the Father who sent him. So Jesus's authority is not rooted in um, his tie to any sort of rabbinic school or any particular rabbi, but to his connection with the Father. And he challenges the Jews, suggesting that if someone knows God's will, they will recognize God's authority in Jesus's teaching. Part of that has to do with the fact that if they believe Jesus is speaking on his own authority, uh, he's seeking to glorify himself. But if they see Jesus as pointing beyond himself uh, to the one who sent him, then his teaching should point to and glorify the Father, and that in and of itself demonstrates its trustworthiness. So after he has this small interchange or this short interchange with the Jewish authorities, he shifts the conversation to the Sabbath, and Jesus is going to highlight the contradictory nature of Jewish law-keeping, or the difficulties of keeping the Jewish law might be a better way to say it. So he highlights this thing where he says, you know, you could circumcise someone on the Sabbath. So you're supposed to circumcise children on the eighth day. And on occasion, that eighth day would coincide with the Sabbath. And so you have two laws that are essentially contradicting one another. How do you keep them both? Well, you can't. And so you have to figure out which one you are going to keep. And the Jews had largely decided that this work, this circumcision, could be done on the Sabbath, that the the circumcision of a child superseded the Sabbath. And so if they landed at the same day, they would circumcise a child, even though that would have constituted work on the Sabbath based on Jewish law. And so this contradiction sort of highlights the fact that the Jews are really missing the broader meaning of the law. They don't understand its purpose. 
And if the Jews could do something with like circumcision on the eighth day when it fell on a Sabbath, why would it be unlawful also to heal the whole body of a person on the Sabbath? And so this is likely referring back to some of the times when Jesus would have healed on the Sabbath. And Jesus does this quote unquote one work on the Sabbath, and that's been frustrating for the Jews. And yet the, the way the Jews have reconciled these sort of difficulties of keeping two laws that fall, um, that then end up contradicting each other, does essentially the same thing that Jesus is doing on the Sabbath. So what we see here is Jesus really confronting the, uh, not so much the practice in this case of the Jewish leaders, uh, because the practice I think is, is sort of appropriate. What he's doing is he's questioning the logic of the Jewish leaders. And he's saying, if you can do this, how is it that you condem- can condemn me for doing it as well? So as we move past that, we see in John 7, 25 to 31, another response to Jesus's teaching. And the people begin to question the Jewish leadership in this case. So Jesus makes some rather brazen claims, and the people of Jerusalem recognize something of a paradox in the way that the Jewish authorities are reacting to Jesus. First, if the authorities were seeking to kill Jesus, this seems like the perfect time to do so. He's made some really heavy claims. They would have perfect justification for going after him and claiming that he's a false prophet or whatever have you, and going and arresting him and, and, and potentially killing him. But The problem is that despite seeking to kill Jesus, the authorities don't do anything. And so there's only a few ways to reconcile Jesus's teaching with the silence of the Jewish authorities. So in verse 26, we see the people ask, can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? And so, you know, there were some who were speculating that maybe the Jewish authorities had been convinced that Jesus was Messiah. Um, But that solution still seemed problematic because the people believe that some people, some of the people, believe that the Messiah would not be known until he comes to redeem Israel. Now, this doesn't mean that the Messiah is just going to appear out of nowhere, but it does mean that when the Messiah comes, that there will be more of an immediate redemption. And so there won't be this sort of enigmatic is this guy the Christ? Is this guy, you know, is that guy the Christ? There's not going to be uh, a lot of mystery around who the Messiah is. They think it's going to be quite clear. And so given that Jesus was a fairly enigmatic and divisive figure about whom Jews disagreed, he was an unlikely candidate for Messiah in the eyes of some people. In verses 28 and 29, Jesus tells the people that they may not know him, but they do, they, they may know him. Sorry. Jesus tells the people that they may know him, but they don't know God. They don't know the one who sent him. Yet Jesus does know God and comes from God. And his response prompts a mixed reaction from the crowd. This mixed reaction is fairly common in John. And what's happening is Jesus is this divisive figure dividing between those who receive him and believe in him and those who don't. Now, arguably, that's the case in every gospel. But in John's gospel, what we have is this sort of uh, setup where we have darkness and light. There are some people who are absolutely going to receive Jesus. There are some people who are actually going absolutely going to reject Jesus. And then there's this group in between um, who are sort of in the gray area between dark and light, perhaps. And they are people who have faith, but that faith isn't particularly lasting. Maybe they're faith that are motivated by a sign or something like that. But it's not a, a deep commitment to Jesus. Um, anyway, his response is going to prompt these mixed reactions from the crowd. And some of them seek to arrest Jesus while others believe in him. But whatever the messianic expectations may have been at that time, Jesus doesn't seem to fit all of them. And, you know, even those who believed 
pointed to Jesus's signs. And they're sort of asking, you know, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? And so we see this reference back to the signs. And that's sort of in John an, uh, another an ambiguous phrase, uh, because it isn't clear that what John is saying is that all these signs uh, that the people who believed and saw the by seeing these signs really did believe in Christ. So perhaps afraid of growing division in the crowd, the, the Pharisees then seek to arrest Jesus. And however, um, you know, Jesus is going to note that he is going to him who sent me so that those who seek him cannot find him. So they send these people to arrest Jesus and Jesus responds by saying, look, I'm not going to be here much longer. And by the way, I'm going somewhere that you can't go. They won't be able to follow where Jesus is going. And the Jews aren't really clear about what Jesus is talking about. Um, They're confused because they can't fathom a place where Jesus could go that they wouldn't be able to find him. And some of them posit that he's going to go out amongst the Greeks and, and maybe that would make him a little more difficult to find. But ultimately, they just can't understand where Jesus is going that they couldn't follow. So this first appearance of the feast establishes Jesus as a divisive figure. Uh, The people aren't united in their understanding of him. Some believe, others don't. Uh, Some uh, want to kill him. Uh, Others want him to be put forward maybe as the savior of the Jews. But in any case, the Jewish authorities see Jesus as a problem. Now, Jesus is going to make a second appearance at the uh, Feast of Booths. And this appearance occurs on the last day of the feast. And we find this in 37 through 52. So as he did in verses 15 through 24, Jesus is going to offer a lesson in 37 through 39. Then in 40 through 44, we're going to see that Jesus's teaching prompts division and confusion among people as it had in verses 25 through 31. Then the Jewish authorities also seek to arrest Jesus in 45 through 52, just as they'd done in 32 to 36. So these parallels help tie these two appearances of Jesus at the Feast of Booths together and provide further evidence of Jesus's divisive ministry. This happens twice, and it's the same response to his teaching each time. But before considering Jesus's teaching in verses 37 through 39, I think it's important to recognize one of the additions that was made to the celebration of the Feast of Booths sometime during the New Testament period. And one of those additions was a water libation ceremony, this pouring out of water. And this ceremony was symbolic of the Messianic age. So as one ancient text describes concerning the libation of Sukkot, quote, because through it, they brought in the flagon of water from the libation on Sukkot. Our Eliezer B. Jacob said, the water that will flow under the threshold of the house in the future trickles through it. Now that phrase house in the future refers to the Messianic age. And as such, the water libation is gesturing toward a time when there will be a surplus of running water flowing through the land. And this is symbolic of, you know, abundance and, and, uh, and prosperity and God's presence. It's, it's a way to um, uh, demonstrate that God is now with his people and that there is living water, so to speak, uh, running throughout all the land. So this ritual is almost surely in mind when Jesus calls the people to come to him to drink. And tells them that those who believe in him will have a heart out of which flows living water. John's going to help us understand what Jesus exactly is saying. And he he tells us that um, this water is symbolic of the Holy Spirit who will come after Jesus' glorification. 
And so the connection between Jesus's claims in 37 through 39 and the water libation ritual explains why Jesus's teachings may have prompted the responses they do in verses 40 through 44. The initial uh, identification is actually of a prophet, and that's likely rooted in the story of Moses, um, where Moses provides water in the desert. Uh, Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 22 had already sort of prophesied that a a new prophet like Moses would be raised up by God at some future point. And so some are seeing Jesus as that prophet who is now providing this water like Moses did um, in Exodus 17 and Numbers 20. Others saw Jesus as the Christ, and the association with the water libration and the the forward-looking orientation of the ritual surely conditioned that response. Christ was claiming to be the one who could make the water libation ceremony obsolete. It anticipated him, and as such, Jesus was claiming to be the Christ. And the identification of Jesus as the Christ was still contentious because people thought Jesus came from Galilee rather than Bethlehem. As readers of the Gospels, we know that Jesus was of the line of David and from Bethlehem, but John's emphasis has been on Jesus' nature and unity with the Father rather than his lineage in the flesh. But David, the Davidic background of the Messiah, was certainly part of the messianic expectation of the day. And so this creates that additional tension and contentiousness around Jesus. He's still a divisive figure, in part because people don't fully understand who he is, where he comes from, what he's saying. Um, but also because, you know, we have this idea that the word became flesh and dwelt among them. But even though the word was the one who gave life to all creation, they don't recognize who he is. And so even though these are the objections that are being put forth in the crowd, at least by some of the ones in the crowd, I think John's um, not keen to defend them necessarily, because he doesn't believe that these proofs, like, you know, Jesus's Davidic background or him being born of Bethlehem, uh, really do demonstrate that the Christ is Jesus. And so um, he's just not, it's not that he dismisses those completely, but he's trying to take Jesus, uh, uh, portray Jesus in a different way as really demonstrating oneness with the Father. So in in verses 45 through 52, we then see the reaction of the Jewish authorities. And as noted before, they they are going to seek to arrest Jesus again. Um, We also see the return of Nicodemus. Uh, Here the authorities are frustrated that no one has arrested Jesus, but Nicodemus is a voice of reason. And he argues that they should consider Jesus's deeds and give him a fair hearing. But the other authorities uh, just don't believe that Jesus can be the Christ, in part because he comes from Galilee. And so they challenge Nicodemus and they say, you know, can you find, show us in the law where the Messiah comes from Galilee. And so they, they, they end up not arresting him. So that, that sort of rounds out this whole um, narrative of Jesus at the Feast of Booths. Now, I noted in a previous episode on the Gospel of John that the Gospel of John isn't without practical application. Like, we can draw a practical application from the Gospel of John. At the same time, the Gospel is designed to showcase Jesus as the Christ. It's designed to display the person and work of Jesus so that we can believe Jesus is the Christ. And in the seventh chapter, we hear some of Jesus' teaching during the Feast of Booths, and by attending and teaching at a festival that pointed toward the Messianic age, Jesus is really showing himself to be the Christ. So because Jesus is who he says he is, we can know with certainty that as people who have believed in him, we have received the Holy Spirit. We are now empowered to live according to God's law and to escape the limitations of our state of sin. 
And as we obey the teachings of Jesus, we will not be confused like the crowds, but we'll have surety that Jesus is the Christ and that his ways lead to eternal life. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Useful to God. Join us tomorrow for a discussion about Jesus' claim to be the Good Shepherd in chapter 10. And remember that you can access a reading guide from the 30 Days in the Gospels Challenge, as well as other resources for spiritual growth at UsefulToGod.com. Blessings.